Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A new film is out, Scaling Wind. We're going to be talking with one of the producers, Utah State University marketing professor Edwin Stafford. And uh, this film talks about an ambitious goal. This was proposed in a Department of Energy 2008 report. Can we achieve 20% of electricity in the, in the United States from wind energy? Uh, and uh, so we're going to look at uh, the benefits of this, the barriers uh, to this. There's some surprising um, elements on both sides. And, uh, of course, this gets into, us into thinking about renewable energy in general. If 20% can be achieved in wind energy, perhaps it can be achieved in solar energy and others. And then, then, we're, then we're, we're on our way. Uh, and, in fact, Edwin Stafford, welcome to the program, by the way. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate being here. A couple of states have achieved 20%. Yes, absolutely. Uh, right now, um, state of Iowa now is achieving 27% of electricity from wind. Uh, Kansas, about 19.9%, the last I saw. South Dakota is about almost 25%. So uh, the purpose of the film is really to show people that states are doing this. And what's interesting, it's red states that are doing this. Yeah, that is interesting. We'll get into that. Uh, by the way, nationally, we're about 4%? We're about a little over 4%. And when this was proposed, we were less than 1%. Yeah. So. Let me ask you, uh, I think some people will be curious, uh, you're a marketing guy. You're, you're <laughs> yes. a business professor. Yes. What What are you doing in renewable energy? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, years ago, I was at an environmental conference and introducing myself to various people and People said, uh, you're a marketing guy. What are you doing here? You know, you're the enemy. And um, the, the person who said it to me was just kind of half joking, but it uh, got me thinking as to, well, you know, uh, marketing, we have a lot to contribute to making a better world. And if we can um, help sell greener and cleaner and more sustainable products and encourage people to act more sustainably, we have the tools to do that. And so... Um, I've devoted my academic career on diffusing clean technology. And so wind energy has been a major um, issue I've looked at. I've also looked at green refrigerants, looked at uh, electric vehicles, and a variety of, of clean technologies. Mm -hmm. And uh, people may be wondering, where's Kathy Hartman? Who oh, know that you yes. were, your, uh, uh, so, were so partners my, in this? Absolutely. So Kathy Hartman and I were colleagues for over 20 years. Uh, she retired this past year. So uh, this film, Scaling Wind, is a collaboration with Kathy uh, and also with Michelle Nunez, who is our director and producer as well of Green Tech Films. And the three of us have made two documentaries. Uh, a few years ago, you interviewed me for Wind Uprising, which yes. covered the four-year struggle to establish the Spanish Fork Wind Project. Uh, this is uh, kind of a sequel of sorts. Now we're looking at the national level, what what, what will wind do for us uh, nationally. And so this was our last collaborative project together. Mm. Uh, and so I've been taking this on the road. Uh, just showed it in Las Vegas uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we'll be showing it at St. John's Episcopal Church this Thursday. That's uh, 85 East, 100 North. In Logan? In Logan, mm -hmm. uh-huh. And um and I have other uh, screening events coming up uh, later this year. So. Uh, where to go to find out more information? Uh, film. Yes, uh, absolutely. You can go to greentechfilms.com. It uh, talks about the film. And uh, just, I guess, keep an eye on local listings for uh, various events. I'm, I'm working with the Stokes Nature Center. They're planning to do a screening later this summer. Uh, the summer citizens are going to get a screening both of Wind Uprising and Scaling Wind on June 11 at 6.30 up on uh, the USU campus. So um, as I speak, I'm still booking dates to, to screen the All film. Right. So. 
And since we're on uh, around the state, I think people, if you have an organization you want to show the film, you can go, Absolutely. To, go to this website and yes. find out how to do that. Yes. Probably even get you to come out. Uh, I'd be happy to do that, yeah. yes. Uh, so uh, when I when I was viewing the film and I, I saw this ambitious goal, 20% wind energy, I immediately went to, you know, I, I got very hopeful. If we can achieve it in some states uh, in wind energy, perhaps we could achieve it in solar. Uh, and, absolutely. And, and I think what, what's happening right now is uh, wind energy has actually dropped in price or cost about 43% over the last four years. The technology has advanced. Uh, so readily. It's actually the second cheapest form of energy we have right now behind natural gas. So uh, natural gas right now is the cheapest uh, form of energy. A lot of utilities are now moving toward natural gas. Wind uh, is a little bit more expensive, but it gives us some benefits in that it's price stable. You know, as we move our electricity sector toward natural gas, we're lucky because it's cheap now, um, but natural gas has a history of being quite price volatile. And what's nice about wind is that once you set up the infrastructure, uh, the cost of wind is price stable and it's locked in contracts. And so it gives you some hedge against the volatility that natural gas, coal, and other forms of energy uh, present to us. So um, that's one of the key issues now with with wind is that if we can achieve 20% electricity, that should help stabilize our energy prices, help clean the air. uh, And there are many other benefits of wind. Let's hear a, a clip from the uh, film. It's uh, Scaling Wind, and we're talking with one of the producers, USU professor uh, Edwin Stafford. Uh, here's where this gold came from. It's a surprising source. I have come today to discuss unbelievable opportunities for our country to achieve a great national goal, and that is to end our addiction on oil. I know it sounds odd for a Texan to say that, (laughs) but I have spent a lot of time worrying about the national security implications of being addicted to oil, particularly from parts of the world where people may not agree with our policy or our way of life, and the economic security implications of being hooked on oil. In 2006, President George W. Bush addressed the National Renewable Energy Laboratory to discuss America's energy security. His comments were surprising and ambitious. It's possible we could generate up to 20% of our electricity needs through wind. His vision for 20% wind led to questions and skepticism by energy experts. That's a big number, especially when at that point we were less than 1%. So we took this seriously and said, okay, let's look at that and see if it's doable what the benefits are, what the challenges are. Is this feasible? Is this technologically feasible? Can we do this economically? Can our workforce handle it? Um, Do we have enough raw materials? So, Edwin Stafford, that's a surprising source for such such goal. We we think of George W. Bush as an oil man. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very interesting. In 2006, President Bush gave his very famous We're Addicted to Oil State of the Union address. And uh, I think what happened was people were shocked when he had said that in and, you know, looking at what had happened in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, seeing that the challenges of our oil addiction were feeding terrorism. I mean, we're literally 
paying for both sides in the war on terror. You know, we're paying for our military to be out there to cover the military costs of terrorism, and our oil dollars were being funneled into terrorist organizations. So it, it was a realization that we needed to address. And so he goes to the National Renewable Energy Lab about a month later, and he addresses the National Renewable Energy Lab that we need to figure out how to get off of our oil addiction. And he comes up with this proposal of 20% wind energy. Um, it was well recognized and known amongst the energy community, but I don't think it was well recognized outside of that. And so we uh, got exclusive footage from this speech that he gave, and I'm so pleased to include it in the film because I would say that when I screen the film, that is one of the first things people uh, identify, and they say they can't believe that George Bush was behind the 20% vision. Where did he get the 20% number? You know, we don't really know. Um, it could have been through conversations that he had with uh, NREL scientists and uh, engineers. Uh, when he was governor of Texas, here's kind of another unknown fact, but he was actually a big advocate of wind energy in Texas. And the reason being was, is that uh, wind creates lots of economic opportunities for rural agricultural areas. And Texas is blessed with an abundance of, uh, of agricultural communities where it's windy. And I think he had a vision uh, as governor. Um, and so I think it, it was kind of part of his vision of the United States that, um, that you know, Texas was already growing in wind. Today, Texas has almost 10% of its electricity from wind. It's a big state. So for 10%, um, and coming from a big oil and gas state, it's, it's a pretty uh, remarkable figure. And so I think uh, it was always kind of in the back of his mind. Uh, he brought it up in 2006. The Department of Energy took it seriously. And so that's Larry Flowers who talks after um, that quote there. And he was uh, the uh, director for uh, Wind Powering America. And uh, at that time, we were less than 1% wind in 2006. And so even the wind people were like, can we do this? I mean, we were going to be happy if we just got 4 or 5%. Um, they did this report and they identified what were some of the barriers and what were some of the opportunities that we could get from a 20% wind vision. And uh, lest we get too excited, uh, we're still only about 4%. Yeah, actually. just a little over 4%. I, um, I was at uh, Wind Power 2014 uh, just uh, two weeks ago. This is the big wind conference for the American Wind Energy Association. Uh, and they were very pleased to report that they're over 4%. Uh, their vision is to get 10% by 2020. We are on track to get 10% of America's electricity from wind by 2020. Uh, they want to get... 20% by 2030, and they're predicting that we could be 35% by 2050. So these are the goals that the industry has set, and uh, we have the technology. I mean, it's amazing how rapidly the technology has advanced on turbines to bring those costs down, um, and that is what's making it so attractive uh, for many states to develop. Now, government has to be involved here, yes. I, I believe. So the states that have been successful have done done some things. Absolutely. Okay, so um, the, the two main points of our film is that there are two things that we need to accomplish in order to make this 20% vision. One is we need to have smart, stable policy. And the other one is transmission development. Let me highlight the policy issue here. One of the challenges that we have in electricity is that it's not a free market, you know, uh, you and I, as ratepayers, we are subject to a utility monopoly. We can't choose what type of electricity we can buy. We only can get whatever 
Rocky Mountain Power, Logan City Power, who whatever is is offering us. And so we don't have the ability as a free consumer to say, hey, I want cleaner energy, I want price stable energy, or I want dirty energy. We just get whatever energy they give us. So in order for those monopolies to operate and to innovate, we need to create incentives for them to kind of move forward into newer technologies. And the way that's done is through legislators or legislators. Uh, state legislatures that will set up what we call renewable energy standards. And so many states, 30 states around the country, have what we call laws in place that require their utilities to procure a certain amount of electricity from renewable energy. Um, The one uh, case that we feature in the film is the state of Iowa, And Terry Branston, who was a Republican governor back in 1983, he signed the first renewable energy standard in the state of Iowa. And when we interviewed him, he said that most of their energy was imported from outside the state. But they knew that they had a lot of wind resources. Iowa's a big agricultural state. Um, They saw that, hey, if we start putting wind turbines in our farms... In Iowa, that means the energy's dollars will stay in the state. It will not be exported out. And so uh, in 1983, he signed the first renewable energy standard. Uh, and today, um, they're getting 27% of their electricity from wind. He is governor again. So he was governor in the 80s. He got reelected more recently. And he is absolutely proud of this, what many would consider a, a government mandate, but it has brought significant economic opportunity for the state of Iowa by growing this domestic uh, industry that's benefiting farmers and ranchers in his state. Well, what about Utah? Do we do we have a renewal, we, renewable we have energy a, standard? We have a voluntary one. And mm-hmm. so this is um, one of the challenges. We feature this in the film that uh, Utah, we're not growing our renewable energy quite as fast because we don't have a directive from the government. Now, my uh, interactions with many legislators is the belief and the perception that you know, we want markets over mandates. You know, and, and I believe in the free market. I'm a business professor. I think the free market is wonderful. But the problem is, is energy is not a free market. So we need to figure out ways to open the market to create innovation. And yes, it does require a mandate from the government, but that's how our monopolies operate in the utility sector. So you've got legislators, and then you also have the Public Service Commission, the regulators, and those are the two bodies that really drive innovation uh, in the utility sector. And on a federal level, um, the production tax credit, which I think we did have, that's, yes. that's expired. Okay, so the other option that we have in order to kind of grow renewable energy is what we call the production tax credit. And what this does, this offers a 2.3 cent kilowatt hour um, uh, incentive or subsidy uh, for the first 10 years of a project when it's in operation. And I'll tell you, whenever I talk to audiences, people say, oh, the only reason wind energy is moving is because of the subsidies. And you have to remember that all energy in this country is subsidized. And the challenge that we have is that some of the subsidies for fossil fuels are so embedded uh, in our uh, tax code and so embedded in just the operation of our society, it's difficult for us to try to pull those subsidies out. President Obama has declared that he wants to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels, but it's going to be a very complex difficult thing because we've got subsidies for using railroads, okay? We, and so coal needs to use the railroad to transport 
coal. You know, we've got subsidies for water. Um, and so, again, coal and gas need water to create steam in order to make the power. And uh, you've got subsidies and, and incentives for drilling and, and all sorts of things. The, the problem is wind and solar, they don't use the railroads. They don't use water. They don't use uh, some of these other subsidies that fossil fuels get. So you have to figure out how to level the playing field with these different subsidies. So the one way that Congress has attempted to do that is through the production tax credit, but what happens is, is that they allow the production tax credit to sunset. And so when it stops, you find that the wind industry suddenly loses its one you know, uh, incentive. And investors will say, well, I don't want to invest in something when I know that Congress may renew it in a year or two. And so we have seen that the production tax credit has ended, has expired. Congress takes its time to renew it. And you see this boom and bust cycle with wind. And that has created challenges because then you don't have a stable, um, you know, uh, industry to kind of work in. You're always kind of under the gun that, hey, that incentive may end in a few months. And so you have to work very hard to get an investor to put all this together. And you saw wind uprising. Uh, One of the big challenges that Tracy had in developing the Spanish Fork Wind Project was he lost his first investor and he had to scramble to try to find another one. And uh, just like any business... Um, you know, finding investors is a major challenge. Uh, and uh, if you've got a tax incentive that eliminates or that dies, many investors may say, oh, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and I'll put my money someplace else. Now, uh, some people, I'm sure, would say that if you give any business a, a subsidy or a mandate of this, this sort, mm-hmm. they're always going to need it. And I suppose you could yeah. look at uh, fossil fuels. The, the, the subsidies have been baked into the tax code. And I don't know whether they need it or not at this point, but it's been baked in, and we're going to have to pay for this forever as taxpayers. You know, and, and, that, and that's one of the challenges, is that uh, you know, we have some of these subsidies that are embedded in tax code. They never get debated in Congress, and so they're not uh, discussed. And so this is one of the big challenges that we have just in general with energy policy, Um, is that it's not a level playing field. And if you're going to move as a nation, if we want to, for the benefit of the country, to move in a direction where we can have cleaner, price-stable energy that's domestic, that's going to keep our energy dollars local, um, we can't rely on the free market because the free market is so distorted. So we need to, unfortunately, we need to put another type of layer of government in order to try to move the move our energy sector in a in a direction that we want. Now you said the industry, talk about the wind, yes, energy industry has set some uh, pretty ambitious goals. Yes, and that's exciting. Will that require changes in policy? Uh, oh, uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, what they're hoping is is that we would have a uh, a stable energy policy. So whatever the incentive is, that it's going to be stable and in place for more than just a year or two. So this is the problem. When it was renewed, the production tax credit is renewed for only one year. So you had a major scramble in 2012 and 2013 of just trying to build up the industry as quickly as possible. And that, um, and then suddenly now then production ends because the production tax credit is not there and investors are saying, hey, we're going to invest in something else until, you, until Congress acts. Yeah. We're talking with uh, Edwin uh, Stafford. He is a professor of uh, marketing at uh, Utah State University, and he's one of the producers of a, a new film. It's called Scaling Wind. 
And uh, the central premise of the film is what are the barriers to and how do we overcome those barriers to uh, achieving the ambitious goal, which was set in 2008 at the instigation of President George W. Bush. Uh, can we achieve 20% of our electricity in the United States from wind energy by 2030? The industry uh, certainly has set that goal. Scientists at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory have uh, laid out ways we can do that, and we're talking about that. Of course, this gets you excited thinking about other forms of renewable energy. If President Bush possibly pulling this 20% number out of the air, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> can produce such a such a ferment of, of innovation. Maybe we could do the same with solar and and, and the like. We do have a, a comment uh, by email that we'll get to following a break, and we have some more clips from the film. More following this break. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about renewable energy and specifically wind energy. An ambitious goal was set by the Department of Energy. This is at the uh, instigation of President George W. Bush. Uh, His speech was 2006. The report was 2008. And the goal is, can America achieve 20% of its electricity generation from wind energy by 2030? And uh, we have with us a producer of a new film, which uh, takes a look at that. It's called Scaling Wind, and uh, he is USU professor Edwin Stafford. We're going to get into uh, the the technology, the advance of technology. I think uh, birds are still affected by this, killed by this in in lower numbers. The turbines are spinning less uh, rapidly. Uh, Still some problems there, but companies are are trying to mitigate that. What are the trade-offs? And what are the choke points? One, uh, I guess, uh, thing that I learned from the film was uh, you can have all the power you want, but if you don't have the lines to transmit that power, you're still back at square one. We'll talk a bit about that as well. Uh, Let's um, go first to a uh, question, a comment uh, on email. And by the way, we would love to have your perspective on this. What do you think we should do in Utah? Uh, what's, What's the wind energy uh, percentage in Utah? Uh, I don't know what the percentage is right now, but we have about 325 kilowatt or, or megawatt hours of uh, capacity right now that we've developed. We've got some new projects that have just been approved by the Public Service Commission that are in the San Juan uh, County area. Um, much of that wind, however, is being exported to California. Mm. And so uh, there is some um, discussion as to are some of the best wind resources that Utah has, uh, will that benefit outside states? Because those states are willing to pay more for wind 
Um, and, uh, you know, are we going to be left perhaps not being able to tap some of the best resources because much of that is going to be exported to California? Why is California getting this win? They've got a renewable energy standard of 33% by 2020. And so uh, my understanding is that I think they're in the 20s right now in terms of how much renewable energy. And I think that includes um, hydro and solar and a variety of, uh, of other uh, issues or uh, resources. But um, what the benefit for Utah is, is that we can sell our wind energy, uh, provided that we have the transmission lines to get it to California. Um, the challenge is, is that uh, we're about 80% coal-fired in the state. And if we do get a carbon tax or if there are some kind of restrictions on carbon, we as ratepayers will be hit significantly on that because we rely so much on, on carbon uh, for our electricity mix. Other states that are diversifying into renewables, uh, they will be, they'll have some mitigation and not have to face uh, such, uh, uh, such uh, carbon restrictions or taxes going forward. It is interesting that one of the incentives here, one of the reasons behind this push, certainly in President Bush's mind, foremost was energy security. We've got to produce yes. our own energy. And it's it, interesting to me that states are kind of going that way. Yeah, and I think what, what we're seeing is is that while there's so much divisiveness in Washington and um, uh, what, what is inspiring is to see that at the state level, uh, we see a lot of bipartisanship uh, in terms of renewable energy. And, and we feature this in Iowa. Um, we have both Democrats and Republicans that we interviewed in Iowa, and they basically say, hey, we are collaborating together because both political parties see the value and the benefit of their constituents. Uh, in Montana, uh, we have Brian Schweitzer, who is the ex-governor of Montana, and he talks about how when they signed a renewable energy standard, it brought in $300 million in investment in the first wind farm in Montana. So here was a Democratic um, governor signing this piece of legislation, and yet many of the county commissioners who are Republicans were thrilled to have all this money coming into their communities because it was bringing economic development. So so we see bipartisanship at the state level, and it's really in Washington that we see this partisanship, and we're hoping that our film can maybe inspire uh, some, uh, you know, uh, better relationships and recognition that, hey, there are some economic opportunities here. Um, many criticisms or comments I get about is that, you know, we're addicted to oil and yet electricity, most of our cars and our transportation are still based on oil. So how does electricity uh, potentially help us with that? And I think the answer will be electric vehicles. And, uh, you know, with Tesla and um, Nissan's Leaf and a variety of uh, BMW is now coming out with an electric vehicle. Cadillac is now uh, promoting their electric vehicles. I'm actually quite optimistic that I think we can electrify our trans uh, transportation sector, and that is where renewable energy will really make a difference in our energy security because we'll be able to power our cars on electricity. And um, that will then show or give us the ability to substitute oil for, for renewable energy. I want to take off with your parenthetic idea there. Where are we with electric vehicles? Do you, oh, do you think well, we're close to <laughs> mass acceptance? No, I, I price think point? Uh, here, here's uh, the, uh, you know, it, we had kind of a difficult um, introduction for electric vehicles, and it was partly 
uh, because we were targeting the wrong people. Uh, the Volt, the Chevy Volt and the Nissan Leaf, they were targeting kind of middle class uh, Americans to buy these cars. And, you know, in marketing theory and the diffusion theory, we know that we need to go after what we call those first adopters or those innovators. And they were kind of going after what we call late adopters. These were the soccer moms and ballet dads or whoever, you know, these kind of middle class. Uh, and the cars were designed basically uh, not for the type of people who are really wanting to be innovative. And so Tesla, I believe, has been able to uh, leverage a good marketing practice by creating a fast, attractive, sexy car. And very um, expensive. And it's very expensive, <laughs> yeah. but but you're going after the people who are likely to be the first adopters. I mean, and, and so status was what was really driving, and that's what's driving right. the Tesla. And I believe that has been a major milestone in getting acceptance of electric vehicles, because what Tesla has done is it has demonstrated that an electric vehicle can be attractive, can be sexy, and can be fast. I mean, that is what makes the Tesla uh, so attractive. And in California this past year, my understanding was Tesla was outselling uh, BMW and Mercedes and a variety of other kind of upscale um performance cars simply because if you're a Silicon Valley executive, you don't want a big gas guzzling Mercedes. You want the Tesla because that is, that's the hottest thing on the market. And so I think once you get acceptance of those innovators, again, putting in a little marketing theory here, uh, once you get acceptance of that, that will open the door for other people to start looking at electric vehicles. And Tesla's planning to put out an SUV and then a $30,000 electric vehicle in the next, uh, I think it's like 2017, I believe. And I think that is really when we'll be able to kind of get those, um, what we call the majority adopters, to accept renew, um, electric vehicles. And one of the choke points or barriers has been the the range oh yes i mean it's a very attractive idea you just plug your vehicle in overnight the way you do your cell phone sure and you get in and drive but but how far can you how far can you go yeah the the range anxiety is clearly uh, an issue that needs to be addressed now what tesla has done is they've actually put a nationwide plug-in system across the country. So if you wanted to drive your Tesla across country, you literally have free charging stations and they put one in Blanding, Utah. And I know that uh, a lot of people were raising their eyebrows like, you know, how many electric vehicles are in Blanding? Well, it wasn't necessarily for locals in Blanding to charge up their electric vehicles, but it was if people wanted to, you know, go across country in their Tesla, they can charge up for free. And that just happened to be one of the stopping points that, uh, that you can uh, take. And, you know, to be candid with you, I think uh, Tesla did this partly as a publicity. They wanted to make sure that people could see that, you know, charging was uh, um, available for electric vehicles. And it's in their interest to develop that infrastructure, because really, we will not get people um, interested in electric vehicles until we have that um, infrastructure in place. I actually wrote an op-ed piece for the Salt Lake Tribune a couple of years ago that sparked some uh, controversy online because I had said that really those first adopters should have been the electric utilities, that the first electric vehicles should have been the trucks and service vehicles for electric utilities because they would have embraced electric cars because then they wouldn't have to pay $4 for a gallon of diesel fuel for their service vehicles. And so I think the um, Detroit and that the car companies were so fixated on trying to build a middle-class electric vehicle, it just didn't 
uh, get adopted because those are not the natural first adopters of, a, of an innovation. So. Mm. Uh, let's uh, get to this comment. Yeah. By the way, I would love to, and, and I love talking about electric vehicles. It's it's just so cool, and uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping personally that the price point, some point comes yes. comes into my range. Have to come down quite a bit, <laughs> even from the Nissan Leaf. But I'd love to have an electric vehicle. Um, back to wind energy, and we're talking with uh, Edwin Stafford. He's a business professor at Utah State University, one of the producers of a new film, a documentary film called Scaling Wind, talking about how do we scale wind energy up and uh, meet an ambitious goal set by the Department of Energy in 2008, 20% of electricity in America uh, from wind uh, generation by 2030. Some states are already there. Uh, Utah is not one of those. Um, this comes in from Lewis in Manti. He says, if the price of wind energy has dropped so much, why does Rocky Mountain Power, or Pacific Corp, continue to have no plans to develop renewable energy projects in its own service area? They say it will be at least uh, till 2024 before they do anything. So they'll just continue to buy green credits from their other companies and charge their customers a premium who want to participate in their so-called Blue Sky program. That's uh, Lewis's comment. Okay, uh, very, very good point. And um, I think we can speculate as to why that potentially is. Uh, from what I understand, Rocky Mountain Power owns a lot of coal-fired power plants. And so there's an incentive for them to want to kind of keep their current resource base of, uh, of coal-fired power in order for them to uh, you know, make money off of their, their current asset base. Um, this gentleman brings up a very good point, and that's one of the challenges that we have with selling renewable energy through Blue Sky and various other types of uh, programs where they charge a premium for renewable energy because what that does is it sends the wrong price signal to consumers because consumers will see that, okay, for me to get uh, Blue Sky, I got to pay $1.95 more than the fossil fuel rate. So renewable energy must be always more expensive than um, than fossil fuels. And yet, uh, you know, the energy information agency data, the latest data shows that wind now is actually cheaper than conventional coal. Uh, what, we're, what we have here in Utah, though, is old coal. I mean, we have coal that's existing, so it's, it's very inexpensive compared to new wind or new coal. And so one of the problems we have is, is that uh, very often how they will compare that, well, wind energy is going to raise your costs because, you know, we're comparing it to uh, coal that's, you know, already been uh, depreciated and it's already existing um, and you know we really should be pricing new wind with new coal or new natural gas, so that way we get a better, you know, a better sense as to what the costs are as we develop newer resources. Mm. So, uh, you can join us as well. We'd love to get your perspective on this. So, wind energy. Do you agree with this goal? Twenty percent of elect- uh, electricity in America uh, from wind energy by uh, twenty thirty. Do you think it's doable? Um, if you're a landowner, would you agree to have wind turbines on your land or transmission lines? Okay, those are, those are some yes. of the some of the barriers. Uh, let's go to another clip from the film. Uh, by the way, the, the place to reach us, um, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can get an email to us. And our phone number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Before we play this clip, this email just came in from Charles and Logan. He says, once you've driven electric, you'll never go back. 
you'll uh, feel sorry for those poor people who had to suffer with that 20th century technology because they didn't have anything better at the time. So uh, a proponent of, of, of electric vehicles. Thank you, Charles. Uh, I'm looking forward to the point where I can do that. Um, and I, maybe you could email back in, Charles, and tell us how, how you got into that. Did you just save up a bunch of money, or what, were you able to get into electric vehicles inexpensively? Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com. Here is a clip from the, from the film talking specifically about Utah, and uh, I think this, uh, this is Sarah Wright, Executive Director of Utah Clean Energy. I think this talks about uh, how, how you can sell these ideas in a red state. Environmental messages don't resonate well with um, the conservative legislature in Utah, but business speaks loudly. It's critical to have industry representatives letting our legislature know the benefits of renewable energy, not just for their own company, but also for the state of Utah. We had done a lot of work to reach out to legislators to educate them about the value and importance of a stronger renewable portfolio standard in the state of Utah because it creates jobs, it drives economic development, it's proven to be a success in surrounding western states, and if we're going to compete as a state in the new clean energy economy, our policies have to reflect the commitment to renewable energy. Until Utah has a strong renewable energy standard and strong leadership from the top in support of renewable energy, we will continue to lag behind and industries will flock to our surrounding states. So, uh, Edwin uh, Stafford, how do you sell this to, to business-oriented legislatures? Absolutely. And we have, we have one in, in Utah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, increasingly our legislature is recognizing uh, the value of renewable energy. Um, it has been a slow process. I've been working in this area for 12 years, and I think the first time I we had talked to some of Kathy and I, Kathy Hartman and I had talked to some of the legislators, they were saying, hey, this is going to hurt coal jobs. Uh, you know, we don't need wind energy. Um, you know, we got cheap coal. It's uh, This is going to work for us. The, the issue that we have is that because Utah is about 80% coal-fired and we have significant communities in our rural uh, par parts of our state that are very dependent on coal, and you've got several things kind of hurting the coal industry right now, not just renewable energy that's growing, but you have natural gas that's very inexpensive. You have the state of California that is cutting off its coal contracts with Utah uh, by 2027. So we're, we're going to see significant impacts on our coal industry in this state. And I think the reaction is that we want to delay this change as much as we can. And um, the, the, the impact is going to be that as coal diminishes uh, as an industry in Utah, it's, there's going to be a ripple effect because we're going to see loss of jobs, not just in coal mining, but also in the trucks, uh, in railroads, in water, all these things that are needed in order to make coal-fired power. We're going to use less water, so people who are in water jobs um, potentially are going to be threatened. Uh, uh, the railroad industry, you know, we're not going to need as much railroads to ship all that coal. Uh, and that's going to hurt the railroad industry. So uh, I'm not sure the state has really got a plan in place as to what's going on. I mean, we're looking at 10, 20 years out and that these changes are going to be happening. And um, 
I think this is something that we need to to recognize. Renewable energy can be part of the of the solution, but much of the jobs in renewable energy are in the manufacturing side. Once you get a solar panel up, once you get a wind turbine up, uh, the maintenance of those things is relatively minimal compared to coal or gas where you're constantly digging, burning, cleaning, flushing out, where there's constant job uh, need for that, that particular type of power. So uh, as we transition out, we're going to need to diversify our economies in these coal communities. And I, I don't have an answer for that, but that's something that we need to be discussing as a state. So that, that will, uh, obviously, the government have to be involved there, industry yes. as well. Well, I think government be should be. Yes, yeah. I think there should be some planning. The, the, here, some, one of the challenges that I see is, is that many of our uh, legislators will say, well, you know, let the free market work. And my, my sense is, is that as a state, we should be, the legislators should be involved uh, in that free market and, mm-hmm. and helping to, to come up with solutions, not just letting the free market do what it'll do. Uh, and, and so that is, I think, an important issue that we need to be uh, discussing this uh, at, the, at the government level as to what can we do to help diversify these communities. I think the university should also be involved, um, you know, our regional campuses and also extension. I believe that that should be an important component as well. Here's an email from Nancy in Paradise. Um, she says she's interested in where the power of electric cars come from, coal, water, sunlight, and what the costs are. Ah, well, right now it's coming. If, if you're in Utah, about 80% of it comes from coal. And so that is uh, one of our challenges um, in terms of, uh, you know, We're displacing oil and we're kind of using coal-fired power. Now, the benefit of using electricity is that we can clean and scrub that electricity at the coal-fired power plant. And so potentially it can be cleaner. It also helps us move in the direction where we can start using renewable energy to kind of power those cars. We don't have a substitute for gasoline that's effective. We have ethanol. We have the people are very concerned about, you know, does that really... Is that really an environmental benefit? But I think the the benefit of electric cars is is that it's cleaner uh, in terms of that we can clean it at the source of the power being generated and that we can also start adding clean energy to power those vehicles. So the subtext of her question is a good one. I hear this a lot. Uh, You're just sort of, you know. Switching. Yeah, yeah, you're switching the energy source and it can still be dirty. I guess immediately uh, you're stopping emissions from your own car. Yes, yeah. Uh, but you might just be switching that to emissions somewhere, somewhere else. else. But, yeah. But as, I think as you're pointing out, there is, if you get enough electric cars out there, there is some incentive. Uh, yeah, to, to, to actually clean. What, what they have found is some of the studies that I've read is is that it's it's actually more efficient to clean the power at the power plant than it is for each individual car. I'm sure many of you have been on the roads and you've seen all the soot and pollution coming out of some people's tailpipes, and it's because for whatever reason, that car is not well-tuned or it's not, um, you know, well-maintained. And so it's, it's polluting. Um, if you have an electric vehicle, there's zero emissions out of that electric vehicle, but the, hopefully the power plant is being maintained well. And so that's where the emissions are being reduced. Mm, Um, and so if you have a solar panel at your home and you plug in your electric vehicle, then potentially you're getting your power from the sun. And so that is, I think the vision that people are having going forward is that we could have solar panels in all of our homes and we could be plugging in our cars, um, you know, 
under when we go to work, be under a solar panel and we juice up. In fact, this is the vision that Tesla has. And I've actually seen these in Silicon Valley where the plug-in stations have solar panels above them. So you get there, you're in the shade and you're powering your car with sunlight. Yeah. And <laughs> that takes this idea of uh, energy security down to the individual level. Yes. Yes. You're, you're and, and and that is your own energy. Absolutely. And that's really kind of the vision of the future that we'll have a much more distributed energy meaning that we'll have smaller power producing uh, facilities throughout the city where you might have rooftop solar, small wind farms outside the city like Spanish Fork. That's kind of considered a distributed uh, because it's right outside the city. Uh, that may be the vision of the future, and we will not need to have these big thousand megawatt power plants out in the middle of nowhere that take, you know, miles and miles of transmission lines. Yeah. Uh, I asked uh, Charles and Logan to write back in. I wanted to know specifically about his car, his electric car, and he's the one who was touting, once you go electric, you never go back, he says. Uh, so he writes back in, I've wanted a plug-in hybrid for decades, so when I found that they're available at the local Ford dealership, I was there in a flash. So that's that's what uh, Charles Wonderful. did. And I think uh, Charles, I believe I'm correct in this, uh, he and his wife, they have solar panels, so they're at least providing part or maybe all of their electricity to their hybrid from their own electrical uh, electrical source. So excellent. They're 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 uh, walking the the walk there. Uh, the uh, place to reach us, we have another five minutes left, is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We're talking with Edwin Stafford from Utah State University and one of the producers of Scaling Wind. It's uh, talking about how do we scale up a wind energy. Let's hear another uh, excerpt from the film. Let's hear uh, from uh, Governor Brian Schweitzer from Montana, Montana Wind Farms, and uh, one of the barriers to scaling up wind. It's been boom time in Montana. Uh, we've employed hundreds of people in Montana building these wind farms and dozens of people running these wind farms. Wind energy produced on Montana's rugged plains is exported to serve urban communities in California and throughout the West. Transmission is a major problem facing wind energy. Either no transmission power lines are available to deliver wind energy to users, or existing power lines are already at capacity. Construction of new wind farms is contingent on where new transmission lines are being built. We haven't made a lot of investments in transmission in the last 10 years. There's been so much policy uncertainty associated with transmission that uh, the investment in new transmission has been very minimal. There's lots of new generation, lots of new distribution, but transmission has not been uh, added at the same rate, and therefore we're getting real thin on transmission. To achieve 20% wind, America needs 300,000 megawatts of wind electricity, enough to serve over 75 million homes. This calls for 15 to 18,000 miles of new high voltage transmission lines, requiring a national commitment similar to the construction of President Dwight D. Eisenhower's interstate highway system in the 1950s. And so we just have a couple minutes left here, um, Professor Stafford, but uh, I'm sure there's a NIMBY factor here, not in my backyard. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, what one of my colleagues at the National Renewable Energy Lab, Larry Flowers, says, if you love wind, you have to like transmission. And so this is um, one of the issues. To be candid with you, though, whether we build wind or we build nuclear or more coal or gas, we're going to need transmission lines anyway. And so uh, our problem is, is that most of the transmission that we have in this country, we have not really invested in for the last 50 years. 
Um, the transmission was developed where the coal mines were, where the nuclear power plants were. Um, they were not built where the renewable energy resources are. So if we are going to take Montana's winds, which are absolutely spectacular, and get them to California or get them to Las Vegas or get them to the Salt Lake City, we need to build transmission. And so a big portion of our film uh, talks about the challenge of building the first merchant transmission line uh, in the state of Montana uh, through private land. And these were all ranchers and farmers who were very upset about power poles being in the middle of their farming operations. And many of their irrigation systems are these big circular type uh, apparatuses. And you suddenly put a pole in the middle of the, the farm, uh, you can't use that uh, particular apparatus. So uh, I don't want to give away too much of how that was resolved. But just to say that we uh, interviewed a couple of the farmers who were very uh, troubled um, by how transmission was coming through their lines. And this is a major challenge. We have private lands, we have public lands that we need to get these transmission lines through. And uh, citizens and policymakers need to be aware of that uh, in terms of if we're going to develop our renewable energy, transmission is part of the package. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Edwin Stafford has been with us. He is a marketing professor at Utah State University, one of the uh, producers of a new documentary film, Scaling Wind. How do we meet an ambitious goal of achieving 20% of electrical generation in America from wind energy? Some states are already there. Uh, so, again, the, the website where people can, uh, can look at the film? Uh, yes, greentechfilms.com. And if you just type in Scaling Wind, uh, there's been a number of blogs uh, and reviews about the film, and there's also a trailer that they can see. All right. And uh, this film is available for uh, people to, to have for their organization. Edwin Stafford would come out, I think, to, for, for that as well. So thank you very much for listening today. Deseret News columnist. Steve Eaton. I'm really good at sleeping, except at night. When you're suffering from insomnia, you suffer alone. There's very little sympathy available for someone who's having consistent trouble falling asleep because not getting enough sleep has become a bragging point in today's busy world. It means you're too important to waste time resting. And when you slowly walk into a wall or forget to open a door before you go into a room, people focus on the supposed humor of the event and the fact that you came to work in your pajama bottoms instead of showing genuine empathy for your plight. The other day, after yet another sleepless night, I was having an animated conversation with Rocky Balboa when my wife came in to ask me what I was doing. What had seemed perfectly normal seconds earlier, I instantly realized was not possible. He vanished. After she left, I whispered, Yo, Rocky! But he was gone. That's another drawback of insomnia. The people who do care tend to vanish into thin air. I know the rules for fixing sleep problems. You should never look at anything electronic, never eat or drink anything after 6 p.m., and when you eat, you should only eat celery. And you must never take a nap, especially on Sunday afternoon. Take no naps? So the only time I can sleep, I should eat celery, but only if it's before 6 p.m.? <sighs> it makes me tired just thinking about it. But I better not go to sleep because it is daytime. That, of course, would be bad. Who makes up these rules anyway? I've been watching a television show called Flashpoint in the middle of the night that my DVR has been recording. 
It's a nice show set in Canada with a police force that dresses like hotel doormen. Regular police don't seem to do much in the show because Canada has a strategic response unit that dresses in cool black battle clothes. They don't need to investigate after the fact and pick up DNA like our TV police do. They almost always corner the bad guy and talk them into giving up within an hour. Okay, I'm hearing it already. You're wondering if anyone else has ever seen the show. Do I ever watch it with my wife? Does the show really exist? Yes, it does. And do not make fun of these people. They are my friends. Just everyone be calm, put down your guns, and let's talk about this. That's what they say when they negotiate with the bad guys who usually have hostages. In the middle of the night, this is very calming. I think I need to go buy a toy gun that I can set down while I watch the show. Even Rocky loves the show. Thank you very much. I may have bonded emotionally with these people because that's what happens when you lose the ability to do anything besides level one thinking. Level one thinking is the same mode that zombies use to walk up to a closed door and moan and claw at it. But it's daytime now. I need to go to work. I think I'm dressed completely, but it is raining, and that means something. I can't remember what. I'm supposed to find something. Is it paper towels? An umbrella, or is it cream cheese? Oh yeah, I remember cream cheese tastes good. That must be it. All I know is I am not gonna drink raw eggs and run to work like some people would suggest. I don't care what kind of music they play. This is Steve Eaton. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including an adobo-marinated chicken panini with cilantro, pesto, daikon sprouts, and provolone cheese. Did you know that there is a shortage of special education teachers in Utah? Based on the Bell School District Superintendent Survey, there is a greater need for teachers of young children with severe disabilities and mild-moderate disabilities from preschool through high school than teachers in any other field. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening. The time now is 10 o'clock. <laughs>